0: The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Relationships, and Disciple First hosted a track called Developing a Disciple Making Culture. That's where today's audio was recorded. Make sure to go online and download a free ebook from their team called Invest in a Few, which is about practical ways to disciple people by investing into just a few. It's available for free discipleship.org slash disciple first discipleship.org slash disciple first here's today's audio
1: Welcome, everybody. Um, my name is Ben with Disciple First. If you've been a part of our breakout, you should be listening to Chris and Craig talk about a disciple-making culture. Uh, this is going to be a little bit different, a little more informal. Um, this is going to be a panel discussion. We have a few um, a few questions kind of prepared, um, just that we kind of interact with and we've fielded from other people before that we thought might be helpful to you. But we're going to, we'll kind of, I'll ask a few questions, but then, so be thinking as we're talking, or maybe you have some questions from the breakout, that'd be a this is a great time. We want to be, you know, be comfortable to ask whatever you feel at this time. Uh, no, no question is, you know, even if you think it's silly or whatever, please take this opportunity to ask, um, ask our panel. So I'm going to let our panel introduce themselves. But um, you know, as you've learned if you've been in our in our breakouts before, um, we're practitioners. We're right along with you in whatever role we have. Like I'm leading groups. You know, in my personal life with, with people I interact with. I'm a part of our ministry. I, my role is um, is. Director of Ministry Partnerships. So if you guys connect with us afterwards, a lot of times you'll see my name on the email. My job is just really connect with people um, and help you along your journey and find some, any answers or any encouragement and resources along the way. Um, and, you know, Craig and Chris are full-time pastors and we have Lance, but we're all, Lance Crow is with the Southern Baptist Convention of Texas, and um, but they're all in, at their heart, no matter their role, they are disciple makers. So we're just here to help be a resource to you. So be thinking about questions, and and if we, as we interact and as we talk, anything that comes up out of that, you know, just kind of raise your hand, and we'll we'll toggle back and forth with some of of our questions and questions you have. So I'll let them introduce themselves real quickly, uh, and then we'll get going with our discussion.
2: Lance. You mentioned my name is Lance Kroll. So in Southern Baptist Life, if you're not kind of in our our stream, uh, I work at the state office that we have about 2,700 churches in Texas that relate to us. And so my job specifically is discipleship. So I work with great pastors like these and other church leaders Amen. trying to uh, <laughs> thank you,
3: thank you. walk
2: beside them, help them speak to others. There's a lot of small, I give a little more of the smaller church perspective because I work with a lot of smaller churches trying to think intentionally about disciple making. And so um, that's kind of my angle a little bit for this conversation, so. Great. Uh, Craig
4: Etheridge, i um, at First Colleyville Church. Colleyville is right in the DFW area. So um, we're, Collierville was a kind of rural area. and Then when they put the airport in, it just all kind of blew up around it. And so uh, it's more of a metro type of environment. Been there for 11 years. Was at an Oklahoma City pastor for 11 years before that. So both of those transitioned to
5: disciple-making churches. Uh, Chris Moody, I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Beaumont. Um, I was at a church plant for seven years, and then for the last 11 years, I've been at a revitalization of a 148-year-old church, historic legacy church. Um, Chuck Kelly at New Orleans Seminary, the president there, grew up at our church. His sister married uh, a man by the name of Paige Patterson, and Paige uh, grew up at our church. His dad, T.A. Patterson, was the pastor in the 50s in the church in the 50s went up into the 2,000 range in small groups. In the 1970s, they thumbed their noses up in bigotry against African Americans, and God took his hand off the church. And the church went... You know, By 2005, they'd had enough. They'd gone from 2,000 to 200. And they said, let's reach the inner city and let's not look at color. And God put his hand back on the church. I came at the end of 2007. And we have uh, reclaimed a lot of ground. But we really uh, rebranded and rebooted. We kind of killed off the old mentality of the church and rebooted and rebranded. And so it's a disciple-making church now. And it is healthy. It's great to be there. Um, it's been a, it's been a case case study, and if First Baptist Church, Beaumont, can be a disciple-making church, any church can be a disciple-making church, because of how many. Uh, I, I spoke at Southwestern Seminary, chapel service uh, a few years back, and Paige Patterson was still the the president. He's, he introduced me and said that I was pastoring the hardest church in the Southern Baptist Convention to pastor. That's what he told, me. in front of everybody. <laughs> It, 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 but it wasn't. It wasn't. God's hand was on it. It was not. It was. It was hard, but it wasn't the hardest. And so God's been very faithful. I've been a professor of systematic theology full time with Liberty University since 2006, and I teach and train pastors through that ministry as well. So, do it all. It's all online. Go to the campus just a few times uh, every other year. So.
1: Great. All right, so let's get started. Um, Craig and Chris have really been talking about, if you've been in our breakouts, talking about a disciple-making culture and how critical culture is to really infiltrate, you know, everything, every part of a, of a church and really not just adding in a disciple-making tool, but really creating this culture of disciple-making that affects every part of, uh, every aspect of ministry. So, but if, if anybody's been around for a while, you know that cha- people don't like change and change is difficult. So, the first question i like to pose, I want to, I want to we'll start, I'm, I'm a left or right person, sorry. So Lance, I'm going to start with you. Um, Lance, like I said, Lance works with a lot of churches, so his perspective, he can pull from a lot of different areas. So Lance, what do you see and what are you hearing as the largest challenge um, of shifting towards a disciple-making culture in churches that you're
2: working with? Well, I'll give you a little more of the, the big picture you guys can talk about in the church a little bit. When I work with leaders, a lot of times, one of the biggest things is for them to, to catch the vision about what we're actually talking about. I would say eight out of 10 of the conversations I have with church leaders, their understanding of disciple making discipleship is some sort of programmatic discipleship university type models. It's a class. I have a friend that says it's more about the completion idea than it's the arriving instead of abiding. It's the idea of people finishing something to move on instead of learning to walk differently with the Lord. And so trying, one of the biggest things I have is just, and you guys are, by being at this conference, you've already kind of um, thwarted that whole model is that people just don't understand what we're trying to see accomplished. I think it's something you could see internally as your staff, even if you're in leadership, as you communicated, everybody has their own definition of disciple making, discipleship, and usually it's different for almost everybody in the room based on your background. So getting under that auspice of what we're trying to see accomplished is one of the main things that I see as an issue. The, the other is the ability to actually make change. And uh, Chris is a great example of the church had to be so desperate that they were le- literally willing to, to change everything to get to that place. We have some that aren't quite desperate enough. They have enough money to just kind of hang on and keep going until the pendulum really drops. And then they're so far behind the curve when they really want to see change take place. And here's the other problem. Disciple making is not a slow turnaround. It's not a 40-day program. It's not in six months. you'll be. It's a slow it's that crockpot mentality right and so by that time they're almost at death's door sometimes we get them before they really want to do it and it's multi years to really see this growth but sometimes you got to, to break it down to build it back up so those are two things I think that we see with struggles kind of on the outset for churches
4: Great. yeah so what are the resistance or problems with moving it toward the culture right mm-hmm. yeah. um, I think some of it is the, the leadership of the pastor having a clear focus of what he wants to be. We've said this many times before that culture is shaped at the top. And a lot of guys that I talk to are just they don't they've never been disciple before. They don't really know what that looks like. And so I think theologically they're up for it, you know, maybe if it'll help me get people in the seats, I'm for that. But still connecting the dots, Lance has lots of these discussions and so do we in training with pastors. But I think even if you have a pastor that Man, I want to make this change. Um, you know, there there is a sense of fear of well, how's, how is how the how are the people going to respond to that? Especially if it's a smaller church. Well, how come you're spending so much time with that person? And you know, and you, and what about this person? And you know, how can you pick them and not you know? So there's some apprehension on the pastor's part to go. I don't, you know, if I start get, gaining a few, then. What do people get upset that I've gained a few, you know? Yeah. And so there's, um, there's, there's a bit of risk, I think, many times in, in getting, getting it started. Some of that may be realized risk. Some of it may be um, uh, just in their own mind, but apprehension about getting started. But what I have found on the backside of it is that many pastors realize, "Hey, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna have the greatest band in my area. I'm not gonna have the best uh, facility in my area. I'm not. I can't compete with the preaching of the other guys that do video venues around me. So, if I can't be successful in that realm, in their mind." then what, am I just losing? I mean, am I just kind of mediocre? What am I? And to say, no, you can do what Jesus called you to do and do it well. And you don't need a big building and you don't need a band and you don't need to be a great preacher. You can just invest your life. That is what will make the biggest difference. And you can see movement happen. And I've seen guys just really get the joy back of ministry because I thought, well, I thought I was just kind of destined to be kind of a C, C player, so to speak, instead of really just, Doing what God told me to do, and real finding the joy again. Yeah. That.
5: That's good. That's a good point, Chris, can you So I guess that? Lance said knowledge, not understanding. You say fear. I guess the only thing to add to that—that's—that's what I would say. I guess what I'd add to that is that this is God's will for His church. So what does that mean? You're going to have satanic pushback. Mm -hmm. You'll have spiritual resistance, and uh, the the devil's a punk. He's stolen our language. Mm -hmm. The word disciple. Go to your Microsoft Word. Can we put that on a bumper sticker? Yes. Yes. The (laughs) devil's a punk. You go to that Microsoft Word on that computer and try to use disciple as a verb. It'll grammar check it and say you can't do that. You know, so we've got, we. if I were the devil, I would get people satisfied with programs and what they can do. And then, something we haven't talked about this whole week, I get them to like it. Like, they like all the extraneous motion. Mm-hmm. You know, you take somebody who's committed to choir. And you say, hey, I need you to do what the Bible says, be a disciple maker. No, I don't have time. I'm doing choir. I love choir. And so I get them, I get them completely enamored, enamored with a bunch of good stuff and that they won't get the great stuff that God is is having. So we're too easily satisfied. And all that is satanic. All that is the fact that we have a villain in our story. And so when when I've watched pastor friends of mine try to lead, ignite a disciple-making movement, a movement, man, they get so much pushback, which to me and to C.S. Lewis and A.W. Tozer and so many other guys, they said that's the exact sign that you're going the right place. You know, if you start going a certain direction, all of a sudden the end, Enemy gets upset and starts throwing all sorts of stuff at you, means he's worried. Well, you and I just had a conversation over lunch yeah. with a guy. That
4: has been headed the direction of disciple making, made some changes, got a lot of resistance, and you know we just said, man, that that is uh, that is satanic. Yep. The, the way it was expressed, if you heard the story, you go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's not that's, <laughs> that's not of Jesus. And so you're going, you're we're invading enemy territory there, but reclaiming that. The great promise is. He's with us, right? He will build us. <laughs> Matthew twenty eight, you know, he is with if you if you make disciples like this, I will be with you to the end of the age. And so that great promise is there for us.
1: Yeah, and that's good. And we've got to stand on that because it is we are gonna get kicked back. People don't like change. Mm-hmm. Just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not worth it, right? So I want to go back to one thing that Craig said um, in his breakouts and just said now, that culture is shaped from the top. So if, if that's true, if that statement's true, I want to hear, especially from Craig, not to leave Lance out, but especially from Craig and from Chris, as a leader, as a lead pastor, how do you prioritize personal disciple making in your busy schedule? With all the demands, you know, there's there's a lot of, you know, every pastor has is pulling, you know, people are pulling on in the congregation, there's, there's hospital calls, depending on the size of your church, you could do everything from mowing the yard to, you know, cleaning up after events. Um, How do you guys in your daily schedule, whatever that looks like, we know it's busy, how do you prioritize personally discipling other men?
4: Yeah. So I'll take a stab at it and then Chris can clean up after me. Uh, We, uh, I I just am committed to every semester uh, having at least one group. Sometimes I will have more than one group. But I'm committed to that, so I've carved out certain times of the week that are. This is going to be my time. For example, if I get a three group of business guys, and as I talk to them say, "Hey, I want us to get together," and they say, "Hey, I can't. I can only do it at this time," you know, you got to, everybody's crazy schedule, right? So you figure out the only time to meet is at 6 a.m. Well then, it's going to be 6 a.m., and I will meet with them at a coffee shop, and I've done that many times before, and we do it at 6 a.m. Other guys will say I can't do it till, you know, this night at this time. That works, and I adjust my schedule to meet that. And you know, when I talk to pastors, they say I just don't have time. Usually, my question is, well, who set your schedule? And, of course, the answer is they set their schedule. You know, I mean, they, they got time for these other things. So I'm not saying you have to do all of it, but you have, you know, we're talking, you know, uh, uh, a couple hours maybe out of the week. Uh, it's, it's much more important than hospital visitation, you know, or so these other things that we give our time to. So just carve it out. That's the work that we need to do. And I tell our staff that same thing. You know, this is the work, right? And um, and so just I, I make sure I've carved out those time slots. I block those out during the week and um, and it's workable, it's doable. Yeah. Anything to
5: add there? Not not much. I mean you gotta make time to make disciples. Yes. You gotta make time to make disciples. I I have to over the years, I've done it long enough, I have to be honest with my own schedule. I don't do the 6 a.m. Um, because I'm, my, my primary disciples are a girl named Whitney, Trinity, and Audrey. So I've got three daughters, mm-hmm. and I disciple them five days a week in the mornings at breakfast. We spend 50 minutes every morning. They get up at 6. I'm already having my quiet time. I kind of tr- you know stop it then, work with them, pick it up after they leave kind of thing. But I, I have a discipling tool, and I disciple them Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Um, our curriculum that we use for our student ministry actually has a Friday at-home thing that we that I stop on Friday with what they're normally doing and do that. But our church is built around it, so Monday through Friday I'm discipling my three daughters, and at lunch, two lunches a week is is what I've learned doesn't kill my schedule. To do an evening, to do another morning, kills my schedule for my primary disciples, my daughters. Mm-hmm. And so these other, I do I do one on two. So these other four guys who become my best friends for. A year to a year and a half, we do everything together. At that point, every time I can get them to come with me to go on a trip or this or that, I, I take them. But for that year, year and a half, they've got to be able to meet at lunch and in an hour and a half. They got it. Most of them tend to be people that can control their own schedule. Or else we have so many other people that can disciple them, But if I'm going to disciple them, I've got to work this in so I don't cheat my family. So and, you know, I'm just going to say as your season of life
4: changes, yes. you know, like my kids are not in, in at home anymore, my daughters aren't. So it kind of opens up, and so I think you find seasons of life, and you just work within the rhythm of the time that you have, and we'll sit, and and you will always; those seasons will change, you know.
1: So does anybody at this point? Let's take. I'm going to take a break from me asking questions. Any any, any of you have any questions that have either been spurred on by this or from from our from our pan, or from our breakouts before yes sir i'm here basically just to ask questions so this is great <laughs> um,
6: so i'm in a lot of ways what you guys described in your first question i just took a call left a bigger church and I'm now the, the lead pastor of a church of about 50 people mostly older congregation so they are in heavy revitalization mode trying to make it the next 5 years and they've got a new pastor who is disciple or by heart. And so we're shifting the entire church culture at the same time. So my question to try and help me and maybe others as well, if you guys could maybe float, what are some ways to help my congregation understand the direction that I'm now heading? You know, how can I help them understand where I'm going by default? Like, how can I bring as many of them with me as possible? You
4: can, So I'll I'll throw out one, and then I know these guys are going to add in some other things. Uh, How big is the church? It's
6: got about 40 to 50
4: coming on a Sunday, about 70 members. So 40, 50 on a Sunday, and some of those are married, right? So you're talking about maybe 20 families or so that show up? 30, yeah, like that. I think 20 to 25. I, I, would, older, older than 60. I would be eating breakfast and lunch and dinner with Five every minutes. one of them. I've, I've, as soon as I get, I'd start with the deacon chairman and work down. And every, out. every meal that I could. Now, I, I know you got a family, and so you, the breakfast, lunch, and dinner may not be fully realistic. Okay, maybe just lunch, you know, or maybe breakfast My and lunch. Right here, so yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, that's great. You can go with it. All- hey, you, you won't even have to cook. There you go. You but, it. but the point is, when you go into, especially a senior adult, you go to their home, Yep. and you sit on their couch and you love on them and you and you sincerely love them I and mean, you're their shepherd right so you're just loving on them and in the course it will naturally turn toward pastor you know what do you think about the church sure. and then you just share out of your heart you know it's not a big corporate thing you're just sharing your heart every time you walk out of that house you have won a person over yep. and so then when you get to the point where you start to talk about it in a public setting you're looking them in the eye you go I was at your home when I said that, and I was at your home. I mean, you're not saying that, but they're connecting, and plus the fact that you would go to them and share your heart with them, they love that. I mean, who wouldn't love that, right? And so it's not a manipulative thing; it's a shepherding thing, and I think it, I think that if I were you, that's exactly what I would do. Uh, uh, and especially that size, you can get away with really having a large impact in a quick amount of time from that. So that's a short thing.
2: One thing I'll say, uh, I. I think that's that's actually brilliant, but prayerfully asking for that, your first group, Mm -hmm. being younger and discipling much older than you can be a problem or difficulty. But that first group that the Lord would bring you, some of the key people that would be your voice once they've come through that first initial discipling phase to the others that when you start to see change take place, they're the ones that are going to stop it, not you. So you're not having to be there because that. why are we changing this? And that first group of disciples now, those men that you're with now are starting to echo that everywhere. And you're, you're, you're kind of working the, mm-hmm. the leaven through the whole dough, but it's not just you standing so, in front throwing in all your chips that you have as new pastor to a much older congregation, they're actually doing that because they've seen change. Mm -hmm. And that's actually, I think, how you change the church the most effectively, too, is over time with your DNA now, they're going to start to want to make change to be more discipleship centric and stop this program and all that. Instead of you having to leverage all your tools to say, this has not been effective, we're spending too much here, you allow the congregation, if you can start that process of discipling but again it is a slow build on that but you'll start to see change just pray the lord brings you It's mentioned a couple times Craig calls those poppers those men they don't have to be the most influential in the church but just ones that god brings to you that can be people that can really engage the influencers in the community
1: all right let me roll on then all right so i know um I know I'm not perfect. I'm not going to speak for them, but I know um, I make mistakes all the time. Uh, when I first started discipling men, I, prob- I wish I could go back to that first group and see all, dude, what all I said and dude. messed up and screwed up. But you know what? God was faithful. God was faithful to form relationships through that, to grow me, to grow other people. So that this next question is, uh, uh, assuming that these men up here aren't perfect. Amen. Uh, hey, big uh-huh. assumption. And so let's start, with, let's start with Chris down on the end. What is one mistake you have made in shifting to a disciple-making culture in the past? What was one thing you did wrong? Sorry, this is two-parter. What is one thing you did wrong, but what did you learn from that mistake?
5: Uh, Great question, because from the church plant to the the church revitalization, I made a mistake. Um, I was a part of a. I've been a part of three churches as a pastor. I was an associate pastor for three years at one church, and that told me everything I didn't want. Right, mm-hmm. uh, my righteous discontent was f- <laughs> firmly created there, and I had a, a long list of never agains. Right. And so then, did the church plant with that in mind? Uh, it was that I was in my 20s. I was trying to find who I was as a communicator. Uh, don't advise it. I was doing Ph.D. work at the same time planting a church. That was not the smart. I was smart and not smart. And um, what I at that point, I was hearing too many things from the Hybels and the Stanleys and the Warrens and every other person speaking in my ear. And so I kind of saw uh, disciple making, which was what was bred into me discipled into me it was my DNA I kind of saw that at that church plant as a eventually kind of mentality eventually some of these people might want to be discipled and so that that'll be the gifted and talented class or the that's that's not just varsity that's that's like varsity the honors varsity you know And so it became kind of peripheral. And the mistake I made is is not expecting everybody to be discipled to be disciplers. Now, they won't all be there because they're not all in the same place in the path. And some of them get stuck in that first step way too long, right? But the expectation biblically is everybody's a disciple of Jesus to disciple. A parent, parents, a disciple, disciples. That's the expectation, and I kind of made it not the expectation. I, I kind of, I guess, with like Andy Stanley and if you get him into the small group, you're good. You got him in the small group, we're good. And I kind of, not even buy into that, but I live that uh, without thinking about it. So when we came to the church revitalization, it was such a mess. Uh, it was so out of my norm. All my friends were like, you're going where? You're doing what? Um, that it was uh, kind of a, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this right. I'm not, I'm going to make that correction. And so from day one, 11 years ago, the expectation is that eventually everybody should be discipled to be a disciple. And that is the expectation of salvation. If you're called to salvation, you're called to disciple making. And it's, it's the commission. It's not the great commission. It's just the commission. As if there were all these other things, and the great commission's the most important. No, it's just the job. And so that was the mistake I made: is in the church plant, is thinking it was for the super Christians, and and not for everybody else. And uh, but. Changing that into the the new church. Everybody, discipling the guy that you don't want to disciple, him being discipled by somebody else might be the perfect one to reach somebody else for Christ that you would never reach. And so it just takes all type of Christians to reach all type of non-Christians, and disciple making creates that variety. And they don't have to have the super Christian symbol S on their chest. You know, you can anybody can be disciple. Not all are ready. Not all are ready to be disciple. But anybody, eventually, given enough time and, and with the work of God, they can be disciple.
1: Craig
5: or Lance? Uh, mistake.
4: You haven't mistake. made one yet. Oh yeah. Mistake
5: right. you made <laughs> in shifting culture. <laughs> <and> dig, <laughs> dig, dig deep, uh, brother. Uh, uh, I
4: know. No, no, let me think, let me think. No, um, I'll like I, I tell you what, uh, <laughs> what mistake I made in Oklahoma when we were just trying to figure this stuff out is that in my zeal to make disciples, I made it very complicated, and I had all kinds of... <laughs> charts and graphs and you know this group and that group i mean it just made it so complicated that our folks just kind of looked at it like (laughs) what you know we say in texas like a calf looks at a new gate you know they're like what is that thing you know they didn't they didn't understand it and so um I think I, I I created more problems than I needed to. I think if I could go back, I would have just I would have tried to say how can I say this in a simpler way? How can I make this easy to understand and easy to onboard and easy to get involved without making it so complicated that people don't understand what you're doing? People are smart, but they're not thinking about this 24 seven like you are, you know, you're thinking about it all the time. So I'm just delivering it to them, why don't you get this? But they're thinking about their job and their career and their family and they you know, so they're not, they're not as far, enough. they haven't read what you've read or been where you've been. So I think just, um, I was too complicated at the front end. And I think that stalled a lot of it. Uh, we were able to regain uh, some ground there, but I had to simplify. I still have to simplify. I told somebody the other day, I've got the spiritual gift of complication. I mean, I can make something simple very complicated, you know, and I, I don't mean to. I just, you know, the way my brain thinks. So I have to constantly say, how can I make this simpler? How can I make this easier to digest and to move forward? Yeah. It's pretty simple.
2: <laughs> Keep it simple. <laughs> Lance? I would have a just a small caveat addition to that. One of the things that I see with church leaders is that they work, they'll they come to an event like this and they'll go home with thought, especially if you're a strategic thinker, on your whole system worked out and how that's going to happen. So that's the whole back-end chart. And then they'll try to develop that at the same time when really you just need to start making disciples. If you start with that and are thinking the back-end, I have a friend that says on the back-end you're thinking systematized. On the front end, they're just thinking you need something with clarity, right? So they only know the next step. What what needs to happen next is to make disciples that they can start. You start thinking that, but I have too many that try to change culture so fast by creating and thinking through the systems, and this is ten steps down the line. And there's nothing wrong with thinking through that, but that hinders them from just getting started yeah. and eventually moving to the place where you're in a place to start implementing all of your systems. So I'm not I'm not saying don't think about the systems. I'm just saying saying, I know some that will wait a year or two putting everything perfectly together and they just need to be engaging people. Yeah.
7: I yes, just sir. want to say, like, I've changed, since we started, I've changed so many things that Yeah. if I, I thought I had a plan at the beginning, <laughs> yeah, no doubt. so I waited two years to start the plan because I was doing so much thinking. or yeah. uh, a year at least, to start the plan, I wish I'd started earlier yeah. just discipling people and then worked it out as I yeah.
4: would Yeah, amen. Yeah. When you think what Jesus did, right? I mean, yeah. he just uh, started with the ones that he had and yeah. he started discipling them. You don't <laughs> see him rolling out a, a five-year vision necessarily, I, but, but he just worked with what he had. So I think there's a lot of value in that. If you go, like you said, just kind of reiterating, if you go public with your full plan, yeah. then when you change it, they go, I thought you meant you were going to do this. And it just
5: confuses everybody even yeah. more. Right Jesus right. didn't print his 27-book curriculum until later. <laughs> <laughs>
4: That's, right. oh, yeah. That's exactly right.
5: Good point. I think it's
1: solid. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
2: Go ahead. Yeah, go right in. Oh, okay. Um, so <laughs> how do you... Keep accountable the theology that happens as you go down generations? Great question. Great
5: question. Did everybody hear that? How do, how do you keep theology consistent as you go through generations? Since this is my wheelhouse with teaching theology at Liberty, I think it, it's it's the unity of the singular curriculum. Yeah. Having a curriculum. Um, in disciple making, your first um, your first clone, right? The, the 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 original copy, the the lead pastor, hopefully, mm-hmm. um, who clones and disciples and reproduces, and re- you're going to get some degradation, right? You're going to get some decay in there. Um, the the beauty of what we have is is we're we're not we're not cloning us. It, it's about Jesus Christ. And a hundred pianos in a room tuned to one tuning fork all sound alike. And so the beauty is you have a resurrected Christ who's right there with you. Now you can get rid of some of the extraneous motion by having one tool and coming back to it and doing retraining. We've done a lot of that over the last 11 years. We've done some retraining. Uh, We've had special times where we've said, okay, let's there's some theological hot topics that we need to come back to. You know, the early church asked the questions and they got their answers. We don't ask the same questions the early church asked. We ask new questions. Some are old, but many of them are new. So we come up with new answers because we have new questions. And um, that's the case with your society, your culture, your church. The questions they're asking might not be the exact same questions our church is asking. So you need to have an input, a constant ringing of the tuning fork of Bible and Jesus and to acknowledge that. And as often as you do, reminding them that we're not of Apollos, we're not of Paul, we're of Jesus. And I think all that kind of works itself out, at least in my experience. I agree. Uh, the curriculum helps you keep everybody on track,
4: gen- four generations down the line, five generations down the line. And so, whatever tool you use, you need to pick it wisely. Yeah, choose wisely and make sure that theologic not only the character and competencies are there, but theologically, it's it's going to take you where <coughs> you want to
2: go. I'd say the one caveat I have a little bit on curriculum is I get so many questions that are, people will call and say, we want to make disciples, what's the curriculum? Mm-hmm. They've already asked the wrong question, right. because the curru- curriculum is essential. To have the wrong curriculum, you're right, two or three generations down, the, you don't know what they're doing, or if you don't centralize it, you got groups doing their own materials you don't know what they're learning. But the, the reality is it's a relational. You're helping people grow to follow and live right. like Jesus, and the curriculum needs to be the guide. We ca- I call it the guide rails. I, I'm trying to get them someplace where they'll walk with Jesus. Good curriculum helps me get there, but the center has to be on the relational side. So if it's it's got to be good, but if it's too focused in the wrong direction, then it's that back of completion. We went through the book. I'm no different. I mean, you have tons of people that have been in the church 30, 40, 50 years. They've been through every Bible study you can imagine, and they are still infants in their faith. Mm-hmm. Why? Because no one's called them to obedience to walk rightly. And so that's where discipleship in these groups, these guys really function to do. It's helping them grow, and good curriculum just helps you get there. So that's the only caveat I'd make. That's a good point. Great. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Yeah.
8: In a situation where we were a uh, classic attractional church and uh, for six, uh, six years, seven years, I guess, now making a transition into more missional, a lot of things involved in that. But um, especially the idea of uh, disciple-making, uh, the pastoral staff, all of us are making disciples. We have a second-tier of leaders that are also making disciples. Specifically, we've cast a vision pretty well, I think. I mean, it's turning; it's big ship is turning. Um, But we, I think, what happened is we wanted it to be uh, to be organic. We we didn't want to go like you know, one two three, one two three, all the twos over here, all the threes over here. We want. So, Lord, you know, we were ask our leaders, who do you thought was putting on your heart, you know, to make it organic, and that's good, that's happened, people are liking it, it's happening, it's not happening completely, but now we're seeing what we're lacking probably is the continuity, uh, the the People on on a in a process. Yeah. What is the plan? I think we just we have the we have the ideas. We have the, the people doing it. We don't have the plan so much. So curriculum, I think, is part of it. Um, but what do you what would you guys say? Here we are. It's, it's happening on on really multiple level le- levels. We just want to make it more clear and more intentional. I guess. So.
4: I'll take a swing at, at it. Um, you know. It's best to start a disciple-making movement within your church in an organic way. And what I when I mean by organic is as opposed to programmatic. If you say, we're going to have discipleship at 5.30 on Sunday afternoon, that is the programmatic mindset, right? Content-driven, that's what Lance has been talking about. And so you don't want that. You want it to be highly relational. So maybe the word, instead of organic, maybe the word is relational versus programmatic would be the better term. Um just because in other circles we have this issue what does organic even mean you know right. uh, you got your neil Coles that talk about organic all the right. time and so what, what does that mean so yeah. So it's best to start relational, like pastors picking a few leaders, and then they disciple, and then who do they have? And they, that's how Jesus did it, right? It's highly relational-driven. However, once you get a couple of generations down, and and the number of people involved get larger, and it starts to seep out into your church organization, you're going to have to start to put some structure around it. What I've found is that it become it 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 begs for more structure. So people want to hear about it. What what is that? How do I get involved in that? There's no way for me to get involved. People start to feel like, well, you just have to know somebody and so it's some cloak and dagger thing that I got to know the right people and I didn't get asked and all these kind of weird things that happen, right? And so I I think that um, it it would behoove you to be thinking down the road about, okay, so what does structure look like around this without it turning into another program, right? And I I don't think that, I think you can't have structure without it being a program, okay? Um, but you know that's where we are. We're about five generations deep in our in our church, and so the word is out. So now new people are saying, "Well, how do I how do I get in on that? I want to." So it's a positive thing. But how do I get connected right with that? And so we're having to build some systems in there that when new as new people come in, that they are oriented as to what disciple making is and what's available for them, and give them some. It's that pathway, right? Right. It's it's making those clear transitions on that pathway to let people know how they can get involved. Is
7: that, yeah. Connected, yeah. To your,
0: yeah. is that connected to a small groups ministry or is it
7: completely independent?
4: So in the way it works in our church, I can't speak to these guys. I can tell you how it works in our church, and they can give you other models too. Um, uh, we have... It, the explore phase, were you in the in the other session that we talked about? Okay, that's all right. So uh, we have a, a mid-sized group structure in our church. And so when people come into that mid-sized group, we have disciple makers in there that are fishing for new people to draw draw into their uh, their group. That's the primary way that that happens. It's very relational. You know, you just kind of get into a group, says, hey, have you been through the grocery? No, I don't even know what that is. Well, hey, let me take you a coffee. I'll tell you about it. It's very natural, very relational driven. It's not program driven. However, what we're finding is that some groups do that better than other groups. You know, some groups have got really good fishermen in there and some groups are fishermen, you know, out to lunch or something, you know. And so they're like, well, we haven't heard anything about that in our group. And so we're having to build in some um, systems so that when you come into our church, there's a, there's a, a, a seminar called Disciple uh, Discover First that helps you uh, get into these connect groups. And then we're going to create another uh, entry point. If you want to know more about growing in your faith and getting on mission, you can go to this other seminar and it will all orient them as to what our discipleship pathway is and, and in, introduce them to people that are disciple makers there. So that's just an example of the fact that as you go, you're going to have to find some structure around it, not to make it programmatic or it will die, right? Right, but some some trellises so that the vine can run on.
7: So a question kind of along those same lines. Uh, we're three deep, three generations deep, and um, so far we've never talked about um, this from the stage. Right. So it's all been invitation only, not exactly cloak and dagger, you can right. find out about it if you want, but we haven't publicized it, it's right. not part of our public communication, stuff like that, it's all invitation only. Um, Jesus invited, so we invite, right? right. Um, but this past, this third generation, we started something that I thought would be a good idea, and I didn't, I don't know that it was good. I'm not sure if it was a good idea or not. But we said, okay, if you've been through in in Generation 2, you could nominate people, even if you didn't think, like, they're not going to fit in my huddle. So a lot of wives nom- nominated their husbands, or husbands nominated their wives, or my sister-in-law goes to our church, or whatever. And so we tried to do matching, it just got very cumbersome and, yeah. and difficult. But yeah. at the same time, the, we also had, like, there was one guy that four different people said, I want to disciple that guy. Mm-hmm. And so. We're but not that guy. So, uh, <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> guys, oh, I'm not, not going to take it on and him. <laughs> <not> <laughs> <about> <laughs> I Fantasy football so, uh, league. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah so draft. Yeah. You need <laughs> a draft. <laughs> I mean, that's so having some sort of a clearinghouse so that Greg Bumpus didn't get invited to four different huddles, that was a good thing. But then at the same time, there were people that it put the brakes on people that they were ready to go and talk to people. who were like, hey, do I need to talk to you first? Or what do I need to do? So that it was a cumbersome it yes. got out of the gate, but it was cumbersome getting out of the gate because yeah. of that extra friction. So I haven't figured out, I like some of what I got from that, but I uh, the things I don't like. How did how do you guys how have you solved that in terms of everybody want like how do you the draft, everybody wants the same person or or there's other people that man, I know that this person is exactly ready, it's per, they're perfect for them, but they're not connected to anybody, they don't have a relational connection with anybody that would think, Oh, this person's perfect.
4: Right. So with us, we don't – I don't go to my multipliers and say, okay, who do you want, who do you want, who do you want, and create the draft board kind of like you're describing. We don't do that. It's kind of a first come, first serve. You know, if you want somebody, then you go get them, right? Uh, because I don't want to get into these conversations about, well, I don't want him. And, you I, you know, I don't know that that is healthy down the line. And then somebody hears, well, I heard your name was on the draft board. Nobody picked you. You know, I don't, I don't want to have that conversation. So I just say, hey, put on your – you know, whoever God puts on your heart, you go approach them, and if and if they've already been picked, then pick somebody else. You know, mm-hmm. um, but what we have found is that there are people that are kind of folks that nobody would go after, and they're going to be the best disciple makers yep. ever. Yep. Right. yep. And uh, they're they're flying under the radar, and so you've got to find some way for these folks to inquire and to get on people's radar. And so, So, what we're doing do now do is that? what I just described. We're going to create a seminar opportunity that says, hey, if you want to know more about uh, disciple making and mission stuff, we're, we're taking disciple making and mission together. Uh, we're going to do a, a quick seminar about that and show you our tools and show you what's going on and you can meet people that would love to walk you through that. And then it just creates a fishing pool for the, you know, the disciple makers to go, hey, I met this great guy. I never met him before, but he's hot hearted. I'm going to. we already had a conversation. So uh, an additional fishing pool other than the connect
5: So how do you do it? With with us at this point, we're about six or seven generations in. And uh, we are trying. We have more in the last year, up until the last year, we had more disciplers than disciplees. And We launched into a new campus and grew by 20%, 30%. And then it kind of flattened out, we got them all discipled. And then about mid-spring, we were kind of saturated. Nobody, you know, not a lot of people left to be discipled. Since then, we've had a new influx. And so it's been it's been manageable. We have two coordinators. Uh, one for guys and one for girls, and they come to staff meeting. Our staff meetings are every week. They're two hours long. We pray for an hour. We we talk about who disciples who. The whole staff, lead pastor, everybody. We talk about who's disciple and who and troubleshoot all that for 45 minutes, and then we have 15 minutes quick reports. That's our staff meeting every week. Wow. So hour of prayer, 45 minutes talking about disciples and who disciples who, and then 15 minutes of quick reports go. And in those, in that 45 minutes of talking about who disciples who, the key for us is prayer because I might not be, he said it, does God put, put you on their heart? I don't want this random, well, that guy's a lawyer and this guy's a lawyer. We ought to put them two together, you know, and some of that is good. Some of that commonality where they have instant community because they're both fishermen or they're both, you know, we have a lot of engineers, a lot of educated people in Beaumont because of the refineries, lots and lots. And so, there are some things you know. We don't want to put the wildly uneducated guy with the wildly educated guy. They're not going to see each other unless the Lord tells us. Maybe the Lord tells us to do that. But we, so we're strategic. Jesus spent all night praying. What was he praying about? Those strategic connections. I, I I'm going to choose twelve. Who do I choose? So we spent a lot of time in prayer, and prayer makes you aware, right? Prayer makes you aware of who's who and what they're doing and what they're going through. Um, I put two guys that I'm discipling because <clears> through prayer I. I realized both these guys I needed to disciple because they have some marriage struggles and prayer revealed that to me and so I'm discipling them and I I, I guarantee you later today going to the airport I'm going to text both those guys what have you done in your wife's life today how are you being romantic court her don't you know, go do the dishes. You'll think you're sexy kind of thing, you know. And uh, I, in discipling, I want to create those kind of ministry connections. Um, but you are you are creating a bunch of fishermen. What's the old saying? Uh, give a man a fish, feed him for a day, teach a man a fish. He'll send a boat and drink your beer all day. Wait, that's it. A- <laughs> That's a different one. That's a different one. Anyway.
2: (laughs) It (laughs) works for discipleship too. I would say, uh, kind of both questions. If you're in a structure that has, and I use a funnel, the funnel effect, three levels. So you've got a worship input, you've got a mid sized group. and and Chris is different because he really goes worship to discipleship groups so the D groups are their life on life on that third level of the funnel the lowest level is the discipleship group so Craig talks about we have churches that you drive people from worship to the mid-sized group the whole deal is from gathering to connecting that mid-sized group is the place where they can connect build relationships couples can be together and then from there the drive is to the life on life which is the fishing pool a lot of times is inside that group gender based you can find men to disciple or others to disciple. So where they're already finding relationship is the easiest place to build them and connect them. Because I do feel, and I've had some that's very mixed if you start assigning and you don't allow it to come out of a relational connection. So so that's the thing. The only struggle I've seen with that model at times is those groups get insulated where they think about inside the group and people don't think about discipling lost people enough and bringing them in. So eventually you get to a church that's discipled people in their small groups but nobody's reaching lost people. That's true plan That's that. Yeah, exactly. So that that's that's where you have to be intentional about that. For those that don't, I do have another church similar to Chris's structure. They have a draft and they'll sit in there with all of their leaders. And if two want to disciple the same person, they'll go have a side conversation about <laughs> the relational connection Amen. that they both have. What's your relationship with them? So it's not like who's higher on the totem board. It's like, where are you down the path with them so that the right one comes out to disciple? And I, I think he said this was this was my thing is. And in my life, it's the people you don't think are going to be the great disciples that are the ones that are the most prolific. And so the leader that everybody wants is usually the guy that runs from it and gets tired of it and does something else. It's the one that's just just under the radar a little bit that are the ones that you really want. A lot of times you just don't know it. That's where the prayer of the Lord leading you to the right people is key. So. Yes, sir. I
3: had a question based on what you just said our church, it seems like a lot of these groups focus on who's already in there as their resource pool. How How do you start to transform their focus to looking for people outside just the church or in their Sunday school class? So
4: make sense? Yeah, well, right. Right. yeah. You know, uh, I think that gets back to, remember that when I drew those columns and yeah. I had them multiply, that's the value of gathering your disciples, your disciple makers together. Because then so it you can kind of start with those leaders. Yeah. So you got proven disciple makers, you invite them to a breakfast or a lunch or something, and you just encourage them, you share stories, vision, but then you might tackle some of the challenges that they have making disciples long term. You know, how do I not get burned out? You know, or sometimes they'll say, Well, I've done this enough, I want to do something different, or or how do I how do I identify people outside the church? I think you can start to give them coaching there and help them to, even even if it's nothing more than you throw the question out, and let them all chime in and, and, and problem solve together. Good. But I think that if you never pull those disciple makers together, then you're missing out on the opportunity to make them yeah. better and keep them hot hearted. Because honestly, there are gonna be some basic things gonna sideline somebody, right? Moody, what are some of the things that are gonna sideline somebody from making disciples? <laughs> Fear, fear. Sin, personal, yeah. sin, personal personal tatten. problems, yeah. spiritual issues, marriage conflicts. Mm-hmm. Uh, soul, soul number three. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the weeds, the, the weeds world. are going to get, just well, these are the things you want to talk about with that group because you love them and they are in it with you. Then you just talk, you walk them through that. And I think that, that that's where I would tackle it than trying to tackle it in other larger venues. Right.
2: You know the only thing I would add to that is this you guys change curriculum part of it is the curriculum sometimes is again that education based it's learning to teach them the things of God not less necessarily learning to teach them to walk with God. So part of walking with God in your groups, you're, you're, you have a book, Investing and in Reaching Lost People. Really, the idea is that disciple-making group, part of it is who in your world is lost and who are you engaging with the gospel that they might come back? Who are we praying about every week that doesn't know Jesus that's not at the church? Yeah. So that the fishing doesn't always in- think internally. We have to be thinking. And if that's re- if that's fostered through the group life, then that's going to become natural that's to them really on point. the back end.
4: You know, that's what we do. Walk with God. Reach your world which is all outward focus and then invest in a few and that's the reason why we do those in that order is because they're already now starting to connect with people that are lost outside and i know i'm not on the panel but i've walked through at craig's church
1: for 10 years been discipled there now disciple maker there um It was key for me. What's pivotal is that the leader, so from top down, that leader is modeling that outward focus. So that was led, the person that discipled discipled me was outward focused, not just inside the church. So then my leader, his first group, he looked inside the church. That was low-hanging fruit. But then yet he modeled, he was, after we got started, like our first group inside the church, then he started fishing outside at his job, you know, in his neighborhood. And so I was still connected to him and still watching him. So a lot of it goes back to the basis and the foundational piece of, of modeling for your disciples. So you as a pastor, make sure you're outward focused and then that your leaders will catch that, that it's not just the church. Giving them that bigger vision that, yes, hey, this is an easy place for you to kind of work this out. We do have to heal the system inside the church you know, to bring people into a healthy system, but giving them that out, outward focus, I think modeling it, the tool the tool helps, but just really modeling that as a leader, hey, it's not just about him here at the church.
4: Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Yes,
9: sir. Yeah, you know, I, I think the model that I've heard most uh, in our sessions in the last two days has been more disciple a few people, then release them to go. And I'm just curious how you keep accountability in that relationship going if you're doing something with a few people over a period of time and sending them out. Versus a church situation where there'd be a consistent uplink and downlink, whatever that looked like, and maybe pros and cons, and, and uh, how you would recommend doing those types of things.
5: Are you asking about accountability after you've released them?
9: Yeah. And like relationship after you release them, because the idea if you just release them, how do you? Know what's
5: going on and there will have to before a problem actually develops and gets too big. I, and for us they have quarterly meetings or yeah, something like that what 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 he said about that final <clears throat> Category that final column of multiply and how you have, he has these meetings of disciple makers Uh, that can take on a number of different forms. In our church, we do four times a year, we do do have a mid size Lance, we have a community group, mid size level. We have about
2: 25 home groups, okay, home group style. Okay, yeah,
5: and we have a what we call leadership community group, and it's for our disciples. And we meet four times a year. It's not exactly quarterly because of the schedule of the school year and whatnot, but we have it next week. And so on a Monday night, I'll have you know a couple hundred people up at the church campus. I get an hour and a half. We model what a community group looks like as a way to kind of remind them not a, not a discipleship group, but a community group. We model that how that should feel. But our material is what it's, it's accountability. It's questions. There's discussion. There's brainstorming. We talk about real problems. Um, we we keep a pretty tight record on that. You know, when it comes to a disciple-making church, the metrics have changed. Yes, you're still concerned about conversions and baptisms, um, but people sitting in a group doesn't, doesn't concern you as much as progress, You know the movement statistics. And most disciple-making churches have to measure the, the metrics through a story of life change, of who discipled who, and who got led to Christ through who, and how that happened, the story of how that happened. And so in, in in my mind over the years, what is rewarded is repeated and we reward the telling of stories. Mm-hmm. We take video vignettes of everybody that gets baptized. We try to, um, we'll take, we'll do a video vignette uh, almost every week of somebody being discipled and we tell their story and that feels like a reward to them. They can go viral with it and push it out on the internet somewhere, but it, it, it is kind of a reward. And we also reward them in leadership too. We Our disciple makers are the ones that get get asked to do things. And so what is rewarded is repeated. Also, you can't expect what you don't inspect, and we inspect it. And I think that's the key. We have a master chart. It looks like a family tree. And uh, that family tree is uh, is very important to us. And so... so I understand yeah.
9: the model where you'd have quarterly or semi-annual, some regular basis, big meetings...
5: Leadership training.
9: all these hundreds of people. How do you keep the relationship with so many disciples over time... If disciple making is relationship. Well,
4: I, I tell you, I can express it in our church. Again, it goes back to how we're organized. We have the large group, then we have the mid-sized group, and then we have those smaller groups. the The ongoing group is the mid-sized group. The mid-sized group is ongoing. It doesn't stop. You know, it just rolls on, and they multiply and so on. These these disciple-making relationships are just for a season, right? They're just for a particular amount of time that you're investing in them, and they're going to go and reproduce. And so, all our Disciple makers are within the context, in relationship, within a within a connect group. They're within that the mid-sized group, so they don't leave that. So they're always in community. They're always with other people that are are going to be with them and know them and care for them. That's where the shepherding cares for them. The disciple making group is for training to multiply. The shepherding, caring for, relational cohesiveness happens in that connect group. So we would we would know. If, if there's a guy that's been or a lady that's been a discipler that they're getting wobbly, it's going to be, we're going to find out in that connect group. They're, those people that are shepherding them are going to be the first responders. Um, we also have deacons. The way we do deacons, we have them shepherding these different groups as well. So they're first responders as well. So we got we got a support system for them. So that way we can get away with just uh, three or four gatherings a year for the disciple makers from a training coaching standpoint because their relational needs are being met in the midsize. Does that answer your question? So that's how we do it.
2: I, we, I have a sure, one of our churches does, he mentioned a little bit, but they, when they, once they have disciples that are pretty prolific, they become coaches for the next layer. And so they may still have their own group, but they become that regular contact for up to five to eight disciples. So it, it, when you get the structure gets big enough, that's that first a of aspect of accountability that still takes place. A discipler is working with them to make sure they're okay and all that. The other thing is these guys, the, the amount of time you connect with that group would be maybe weekly, and then that sphere just gets longer. So maybe you're just gonna check in less regularly, but there's still relationship built there that allows for that to continue. It doesn't ever disappear or end unless they move away or something of that sort, but it just gets wider and wider as a new group comes in. Like Chris says so well, you know he spends all of his time, they're going places with him. Once they move out of it, they're not going to do that, but he's going to check in Still on close. them. Still yeah, close, yeah. And that when they have an issue or something, hopefully that relation's built strong enough right. that they're going to be honest and they need to back out of something for a little while, that, that there's, there's an openness for that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, and,
5: a very, and very strategically it's once a week after I release them it's once a month after that year it's once every three months after that year it's like once or twice a year but I, I, I try to meet with them I have a running list of okay I need to call him so I, I keep track of that for me and I encourage our other disciples to do that that's good I, I do do that Chris is more organized. Uh, I mean, legit, he has to be. with
4: that, than I life, am. I have to be. Uh, and I think that's that's a real strength.
3: Is there another question? Yes, yeah, our question, I guess, is most of answered. on the hills of the question previous, um, but I guess it's in, in question with what we're seeing in today's, especially in American culture, pastors, um, men that have led for many years, and, discipleship culture. And one of the things I did personally after being an elder for quite a few years is there's a, Lord brought in a man that was about 30 years older than myself. Went through additional discipleship for about seven years. And it just really was an encouraging thing for me as a leader because if you look at the stats as church leaders, the you know, probability of us completing if you look at the stats are not too good. Use a discipleship culture to, to capture, to restore fallen leaders, burnout leaders, depression among leaders is high. We see the stats. And I was gonna see if you guys had any uh, hands-on with that or
5: experience with restoring leaders using discipleship. Chris, yes. you know, I love I love how you expressed it. In a disciple-making culture, it's amazing how many times the answer to a question is disciple them, right? Oh, we got this problem in this leadership and this fall festival and, blah, 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 and some problem. What's the answer? Disciple them. You know, it's it's it's, it's think a tour guide, not travel agent. They need a tour guide. They need someone to come alongside of them. And when you create that in the culture, people see that as church. That's church. Who can I come alongside? Iron sharpens iron. Who can I? Who can I invest my life in? I don't get to grow in my relationship with God unless I'm I'm that river, and as that water of that other person's life is flowing through me, it carves grooves in my soul for the Lord. And so I want to grow deeper. Well, I got to go find that guy. And so our, our church, uh, ha- with that culture, sees these people, and we don't see problem. We see opportunity, right? We don't. See see problem, we see opportunity. You had a young girl named Bree just gave her life to Christ two weeks ago. She's 19. Uh, you can see the tracks on her arms. Uh, got her in Celebrate Recovery. I saw her two days ago. Came up to the office. Um, she's she's saved. She's being discipled already now. She's she's trying to get a job at Lifeway, and I think she'll get it. Our our Lifeway in our local town. We know the manager, and she is God has just done a big work in her in her life. As she walks into the office. Yeah. <smart noise> All of our people hear the, these stories because that's how, that's the metrics of a disciple-making <laughs> church, these stories. And they're like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like she comes, she's coming to say hi to me and some others. Well, she's already talked to 20 people. You know, she's come back in the back. And I, and I say that to say that disciple-making, when it comes to restorative work, um, in the last six months we've had a, a pastor who had an affair and got fired from his job. We, through our counseling and then through disciple, we have a counseling center. Through our counseling and then through disciple-making, he's got a great job. At the, ha- at the Baptist Hospital. His marriage is restored, and praise the Lord, because we invested in him. So he and stayed within the same church. He didn't n- have to leave to No, there. he left that church. They did wrong by him. Oh, they did?
3: came okay. so he went to another, so that's, that's mainly. In that I same think. area. My experience is with pastors, are, you know, for two situations, one in Huntsville, Alabama, one up in Ohio, where the pastor was Restored in the
5: church. In that same church.
3: Right. One of them actually was restored after he submitted to the process of discipleship back to being lead pastor. Wow. And went on for awesome. 30 years to, to minister with yep. no problems. Yeah. But, but you, don't, you just don't hear it that often. That's yeah, it
4: unfortunately, there's not, uh, churches don't know how to handle that, especially right. from the lead pastor. You know, they don't know how to what to do with that situation, and it's just easier. For, for them, to, they feel like to just the pastor goes away, and sometimes the pastor wants to go away, right? Depending on what the situation is, I've had I've had one experience of a staff member that was that we restored, uh, that was caught in some issues of sin issues, and with through counseling revealed some abuse things that happened in his past. He was able to be restored and relaunched out, and is doing doing great. Uh, but for every one of those stories you hear, there's you know, dozens, right? Where it didn't happen well. I think on our our staff, uh, we we realized that the span of care for our staff was not. Very good. In other words, there there were too too many people that, that there wasn't one somebody shepherding their soul, and so when we reorganized our staff about a year and a half ago, we made sure that there were teams where that team leader is not just working with them as their boss, but also regularly once a quarter meeting with them and asking them questions about how how's your heart, you know? I mean, are you okay, and how things at home? I meet with our our senior leadership team at once a week. The first question I always ask them is, how are you? How are you at home? How are your kids? And that's the first thing we talk about. Um, You know, I don't know if if you know that i'm sure there could always be more that you could do but at least you're asking those questions you know a lot of times the, the church staff they don't even ask you any of that just are you getting your work done you know so um, i think span of care helps with that so i just ask one more
6: question i don't think it's really off topic but as picking up on something that jim putton said last night uh, one of the things i kind of picked up from him is that there's a I, i'm not trying to speak for him just kind of what i picked up that there's a little bit of an undercurrent of concern that if if what we're doing right now, talking about disciple making, really kind of becomes a movement and really catches fire, that our tendency in the American culture to mass produce things could shift it um, to kind of accommodate that. So my question, I guess, is what do you feel like the disciple making movement has to maintain in order for it to be Talking about right now, what, and kind of what are, what are the core, primary things we've got to maintain? Um, and maybe, maybe there's three things. There's three of you. Maybe you all will agree. But, but we've all seen this. You know, every couple of months you go to a Christian bookstore, and there's the next thing we ought to do. And so, when disciple making becomes the thing, it could drift into some waters that ruin the whole thing. So,
4: right.
2: What can we not allow that to Plants. Thanks, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I do, so I, I've, I've sat at the state denominational level. I was on staff at a church for seven years, and then I've sat for 13 years. This, this will not be the buzz in, Five years. I, I heard Bill Hull say two to three years is his expectation that this is kind of the wave that we're on, and it will not be the buzz anymore. And so we, we try to ride the wave as much as to get the word out because people are interested and to build deeply in that time. But you, I can already see in some places where there's a watering down of what we're really trying to see take place, and it becomes about other groups and peripheral things instead of actually disciple-making. And so... Um, I do think it'll pass and then these events like these will, and I don't know anything, not specifically org but it'll be harder because it's just not on people's radar anymore and I think what has to happen and stay consistent is helping people make disciples in the churches and then helping them take the next steps of changing building structures in place they are going to help move that as the church makes progress in that. Those are key things that cannot be left out but I, I do think we're on a wave and it won't be the focal point in a, in a period of time. Just just watching, I, family family ministry. In 2010, 2011, most churches have this big thing. We're talking about family ministry. 2018, 2019, I don't get calls of people interested in family ministry. There's still there's still focus on it, but that wave is not there in the same way. I think this is on a wave for it, and so we have to keep pushing deep into what we're trying to see happen, not just produce events, not just to get people to show up. Just like the same thing in the church. It's about building slowly, and not everybody in the church wants to come to an event like this, just like not everybody 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 in your church is ready to be a disciple. Not everybody's interested in this. So we take those that really want to kind of take the next level. We do that in our state. Who's interested and how can we help move them along? Others that aren't interested, we keep throwing it out there, trying to help them see it. We can't get them to a place where they're really willing to make the changes necessary in their own life and in their church to make disciples. And we, we just keep hoping that God will give us more, but just take the ones that he has given us. So I do think it's a wave that comes and goes. Um, and we just have to stay focused on what we're here to do. I didn't give you enough specifics on what can't change, but.
4: You know, um, has always been under the radar. I mean, since first century, right? Jesus ran under the radar for 18 months under John's public preaching, you know, just gathering and training and developing before he ever went public. So uh, it doesn't bother me if if disciple making is selling lots of books or not selling lots of books. uh, We will still continue to do it. And I think the thing that that we have to say is continue to challenge pastors to go back to the life of Christ. (laughs) Disciple making is always about Jesus. It is about Jesus. And not only his message but his methods as well and I think we need to keep resonating that that message it's not only about the message of Jesus but the methods of Jesus are are important as well and uh, I think that we need to stay the course on that and um, also on a side note I think that what God's putting on my heart uh, is church planting I think we need those that are disciple making churches need to need to have babies we need to have, you know, church planting uh, with a disciple-making DNA is critical. Mm-hmm. So just when our church, we're about to shift gears and let, roll out a very aggressive strategic plan for planting more disciple-making churches. So, so the last word, make babies. Make babies.
6: <laughs>
5: <Yeah>. <laughs> Anything else? That's Mitch? on tight. On t- <laughs> yeah. Make babies for the Lord. Um, you know, th- the beauty of the twin tower towers of our church, at our church, is expository preaching of the inerrant Word of God and disciple-making as the church of God, right? The Word of God and the church of God, biblically, you can't compromise those two. Everything else comes out of those two twin towers. And yeah, you can drive a plane into them in American Christianity and they can crash. But the beauty of the church of Jesus is the gates of of hell will not overcome it, right. and so the the church has survived when the epicenter of Christianity moved in the first second century from Antioch to Alexandria. It survived when it moved from Alexandria into the heart of Roman world, and then into Europe. And when the epicenter of Christianity moved to America, it survived those that move, and it's moving to Africa. A lot of people are saying, and it'll survive that move, Christianity. Will survive. And if you go to the mission field, as many of us do, you see disciple making because they don't have buildings. They don't have fancy preachers. They don't have big sound systems. They don't have buildings. And so, what is the church? It's one believer who has a heart of the love of Christ and a Bible in his hands and has been trained and he says, Hey, let me give you what I was given. From the gospel to the grave, let me show you what I was given. And that's the church. And if, if, as soon as you circle the wagons and you get on the defense, you've moved away from Matthew 16 and the Great Confession, and you've become something that Jesus didn't intend. And so what will help here in America? Persecution. You know, that'll help. The blood of the martyrs will water the church. Mm-hmm. Um, when you see the watering down, the death of churches that aren't wanting to be disciple makers, you'll, you'll see a, a, a pruning. And the churches that are disciple making churches, tighten your belts, build smaller buildings. Think uh, disciples, not staff. And move forward into the future and praise God he's coming again.
0: You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. Make sure to download a copy of a free ebook by Disciple First called Invest in a Few at discipleship.org disciplefirst. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.